0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by discovery.
1: Hello, I'm Jackie Cameron. Welcome to episode 79 of Inside COVID 19. this episode, Biz News founder Alec Hogg interviews Gwarang Tanner, the National Health Department expert behind the launch of mobile app COVID Alert SA, which is aimed at tracing people who've come into contact with individuals who've tested positive for COVID-19. Our partners at the Wall Street Journal investigate the challenges that researchers have faced in recruiting participants for COVID-19 vaccine trials. And... A small business owner documents the expenses and struggle of having to test for COVID-19 and monitor for the disease. First, the COVID-19 headlines making the news. Just under 14,300 deaths have now been recorded in South Africa as a result of the disease, and just under 630,000 cases have been reported to the government. The recovery rate is registered at 87%. South African taxpayers have been footing the bill for digital thermometers priced at just under 15,000 rand each. That's one of the discoveries by mybroadband.co.za after President Sir Ramaphosa ordered provincial and national government departments to publish details of COVID-19 tenders. The website reports that the national government spent 14.3 million rand on digital thermometers to combat the COVID-19 crisis. Limpopo spent the most on the digital thermometers out of all the provinces. The investigation looked at both national and provincial spending and found that most thermometers were purchased for between 1,500 rand and 3,000 rand per unit. However, there were cases where departments paid in excess of 5,000 rand for a thermometer. One example is the Government Communication and Information System, which recorded a transaction disclosing 13 thermometers purchased for 74,000 rand. The Department of Tourism is also documented as purchasing two thermometers for just under 30,000 rand, which translates to 14,750 per thermometer. To the advertised retail prices of thermometers at Takealot and Macro, the cheapest thermometer is priced at around 250 rand, while the most expensive one is priced at just under 700 rand mybroadband.co.za said it's unclear whether there's a typing error in some of these figures. In multiple studies involving a total of 1,700 patients, it was found that corticosteroids helped reduce deaths from COVID-19 by about a third, compared with patients who didn't receive steroids. Corticosteroids are anti-inflammatory drugs that can dampen the effects of an overactive immune system. The analysis was published on Wednesday in the Journal of the American Medical Association. A European Union health expert has cited risks for EU countries in reducing quarantine periods from the standard 14 days. Andrea Amon, director of the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, says that about 3-4% of cases will develop after the two-week isolation period. Amon told a European Parliament committee that the more you reduce the quarantine, the more of these cases will go undetected. But other experts say lockdowns don't work. The Wall Street Journal reports that six months into the COVID-19 pandemic, the US has now carried out two large-scale experiments in public health, first in March and April, with the lockdown of the economy to arrest the spread of the virus, and second since mid-April, which has entailed reopening the economy. The Wall Street Journal says the results are in, counterintuitive though it may be. Statistical analysis shows that locking down the economy did not contain the disease's spread, and reopening it didn't unleash a second wave of infections. This chimes with analysis by the South African group of actuaries and mathematicians, which call themselves PANDA, which stands for Pandemics and Data Analytics. PANDA has been sounding the alarm for months that the South African lockdown serves no purpose in saving lives. On its website, it reminds us that in more than 160 days of lockdown, at least 3 million jobs have been lost and hundreds of millions of school days have been cancelled. For more on that, do visit BizNews Premium. Next, we hear all the details about the mobile app COVID Alert SA from Guarang Tanna, the National Health Department expert behind its launch. He spoke to BizNews founder Alec Hogg. Inside
0: COVID-19 from BizNews. Karang Tana is the Head of Policy Coordination and Integrated Planning at the Department of Health and the ideal person to put together the app that South Africa launches today for contact tracing. Good to be talking with you. I say ideal person because actually before you went into public health, you were a computer scientist or at least trained in that field.
2: Um, That's right, yeah. So my background is in technology and an enthusiastic public health professional who's worked now a decade, more than a decade, in the health department yeah, has uh, uh, made me, you're right, yeah, I would say uh, somebody who's got a hybrid skill set between public health and technology.
0: And no doubt keeping in touch with developments around the world. I see you've tapped into Google and Apple, and that's quite important from a privacy perspective. How do you even start, though, putting together an app that one hopes all South Africans are going to download?
2: So there are various different modalities that countries have utilized around the world. And I guess we, we've had the advantage of learning from many, many other countries. Singapore, for example, that started using Blue Trace, to UK using a centralized model for achieving the same objective. To us, following suit with a number of countries who decided to opt for an Apple, Google exposure notification, this was a trade-off between how much we can service our client and how privacy conscious the app would be. And uh, we settled on ensuring that the app is sensitive to ensure that there's no privacy infringement here to get that adoption we need and get that effectiveness we need for a public health intervention to work. We're hoping that we've made the right choice. Time will tell how many downloads we get, etc. Countries globally have struggled in getting the adoption rates, but we're hoping that privacy would not be one of the reasons why South Africans would not download this app. It's so
0: interesting you make that point because it's becoming more and more mainstream now, the whole story of privacy. I don't know if you watch Netflix and House of Cards, but even there in very popular series, uh, you have these nefarious industrialists who get people to download an app so they can check where they're going to. I guess that's in the mind of many people in the public. They're now uh, worried about privacy. So how are we protected once we download this app?
2: So the way the app works is essentially you download the app with an intent to receive a notification from somebody else who may test positive later and may have come into contact with you. So it's very, very important that people download this app before they become infected. So we encourage all South Africans to download the app and in an eventuality they come into contact with the positive, hoping that person also had the app on. Both of them could be protected because The index case would then be able to inform you that they come into contact with you and how now have reported positive. If you walk into a supermarket and another positive came close contact with you, but didn't know was spreading the virus without him knowing it, essentially this person could few days later, you know, notify their, their diagnosis on the app and the app will do the rest of notifying all the close contacts that that person came into contact with.
0: No, I get that. But the problem here is Big Brother knows where you are at any point in time. So, so are you prote- how are we protected against that being a
2: Right. Problem? So very, very important question. The way the app works is I would have, for example, an app installed on my phone. You would have the app installed on your phone. The app doesn't know my name. Your app doesn't know your name. Both of the apps have unique IDs. If me and you come into close contact with each other, like within close proximity, within two meters as well as for a sufficient duration for like 15 minutes. We use WHO's guidance on this. The apps would exchange IDs. And say a couple of days later, I report positive. I didn't know I came into contact with you. Only our phones know that this phone had had a close exposure with that phone. And so your phones are really your proxy measure of distance between two people. I would notify my device of my positive diagnosis using a PIN code that the Department of Health would have sent me. And the app would then notify all the close contacts, would do the rest basically. And it's all part of this whole project that
0: Apple and Google have put together to make sure that there isn't going to be any abuse. It's a very special, presumably, encryption codes, etc.
2: Absolutely. So there are two key pieces of technology that make it work. The first is Apple, Google, interoperability between the two sets of devices, and then the app itself. The second is the validation of a positive. What you don't want is a person who deliberately come into close contact with hundreds and thousands of people and fictitiously report a positive, creating panic in the system. So what the app does is it's got a validation process built in. Every person that gets a confirmed positive result would receive a PIN code. The PIN codes are sent to, by the way, positives and negatives, but it's on capture of that PIN code together with your date of birth. The app would then verify that against our COVID Connect system and verify indeed that this is a true positive and then allow the exchange of keys to happen. And this is just to ensure that the fidelity of the system is not compromised in any way. But the two are completely different services. The validation service and the exposure notification service that we use with support from Google and Apple are totally independent services of each other and therefore very much privacy-preserving.
0: It's very sensible. A pity, however, that it wasn't available six months ago. Why Why has it taken so long to put it together? Yeah,
2: so as mentioned, at the onset, we started manual contact tracing methods. We then opted for SMS and a WhatsApp-based service, largely because of its penetration in South Africa. We know 35-plus million South Africans use WhatsApp in the country, and... We thought that would ensure utility value and wouldn't require anybody to download an extra app. We know many, many countries struggled with this, certainly at the onset uh, when the system came out. The second also was we wanted to learn from the process. And maybe taking a step back, in building COVID Connect, what looks ordinarily like a very simple user interface, both for healthcare workers as well as our citizens, has got very complex architecture sitting behind it. Because it's got an architecture whereby we draw on lab results from public and private labs across South Africa, offer that to COVID Connect. COVID Connect then sends out SMS messages, make it available to healthcare workers, the reporting back from the citizens made available to healthcare workers. So the entire integration uh, was a very sophisticated integration process to be able to achieve it. And we're so glad we did it because without that, we wouldn't be able to set up a validation service that we now use with the COVID Alert app. March 2020, we started a WhatsApp service for health prevention messages. A month later, we started screening self-risk assessment capability on that WhatsApp channel. A month or two after that, we introduced the ability to receive lab results through WhatsApp, notify contacts anonymously through SMS, and monitor the health status of index cases through WhatsApp. And in as many months, we now have a COVID alert app. So as you can see, we're trying to use every technology we can find to actually improve the effectiveness of the contact tracing process.
0: This is very positive for the future for a number of reasons. A, government embracing technology in such a sophisticated manner as you've done. But how much support did you get from those in the private sector? I do see on your FAQs that Discovery Health, for instance, has been pretty involved in this whole process. How so?
2: Yeah, so we've been fortunate enough to have Discovery team on our side. They've done a lot of work pro bono, not a lot, all the work pro bono. The app itself was built with support of Discovery. But to drive adoption, let me also mention the commercial banks in South Africa. The Banking Association of South Africa and their members have been very much supportive of this from the onset. And they're going to be using uh, the collaterals we've produced, plus their own, to be able to extensively market the service and the app itself for wider adoption. And also the mobile network operators. We've been very lucky to get support of Vodacom, MTN, Celsi, Telcom. They've all come to the party without hesitance, wanting to support this, wanting to drive communication and encourage our population to download this. If you cover the four telcos plus the five banks, the largest banks, the largest commercial banks in South Africa, you're targeting quite a number of South Africans. And we're hoping that the call to action from those corporates will be received positively by our population and download the app. It's a very classic public-private partnership.
0: It's brilliant to see. I hope that there's been an oversight on this, but I didn't see Capitech's name amongst the banks.
2: No, Capitech has been supporting, yeah. So a number of banks have also offered to deep link their own mobile apps with this app to encourage a download. Capitech has been one of the banks that are also trying to work out how this best to achieve this. But irrespectively, they've all offered support to market this through their websites, through their digital communications channels, through various channels that they have with their clients to get high scales of adoption across the country. And then to download the app, pretty
0: simple. Is there a website? Is it on the Apple App Store or the Google App Store? Or
2: where does one get it? Both the Android and the Apple App Stores have the app available for download you just got to search COVID alert essay. We're also working on the Huawei App Store since they've sort of parted ways with Google and be hoping to achieve this soon. But we know 80-85% smartphone users in South Africa are on Android, maybe 18 20 percent are on, on Apple. And we also know earlier versions of Huawei cell phones all belong to the Google Play Store, all have access to Google Play Stores. So I think we're covering quite a huge chunk of the smartphone population in South Africa. So you've got the app, which is going to help with
0: contact tracing and make it much cheaper and save our tax rans from doing it manually. You've addressed the privacy issues with us. You did say earlier, though, that around the world, there has been a low uptake of the similar type apps by the public. How are you going to address that challenge?
2: So, as mentioned, there were two different modalities that many countries used, and I think there were probably two, three broad concerns that have been blockers to this. The first is people are worried that we might be tracking them. The second concern might be that the uh, Bluetooth protocol might be draining the battery too much and therefore make it unfeasible to use this for long. And the third might well be that we might be tracking, pers- taking personal information and using it for other purposes. Now, the benefit of the Google and ex- uh, Apple Exposure Notification Service allows us to deal with those in one or another way. Privacy, because they wouldn't allow us to put on anything else on the app other than this the battery drainage, what happens is with the convention, the, the blue trace protocol, for example, that Singapore implemented, and that was, I think, the first, if, I think was one of the first large scale implementation where a blue trace protocol was used was a significant battery drainer it has been solved with Apple and Google because uh, they've taken care of it by embedding some of the technology within the operating system, etc., and optimized it as far as possible third is uh, personal information. I think also gets got taken care of largely because Apple and Google wouldn't want us to put anything else on the app other than uh, being used for this exclusive purpose. So we think these three blockers we've achieved and we're hoping that uh, we would learn, we would be able to get that large-scale adoption we need to be able to get the highest effectiveness that we can get. Initial studies shown that you need 60% of your population to download this app. We've been in contact with Oxford's Big Data Institute and their subsequent findings have revealed that you can get effectiveness from even as little as between 10 and 15%, albeit at a lower scale or at a lower degree. So we're targeting 10 million downloads, which is a roughly a one-third of the smartphone population in South Africa. And this need not be a national coverage. So if you have 60% at sub-geography, so in a particular district or in a particular suburb or in a particular supermarket, for example, the app will be very successful in achieving that effectiveness.
0: Thanks again to Gaurang Tana, who's the head of policy coordination and integrated planning at the Department of Health. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
1: Our partners at The Wall Street Journal investigate the challenges that researchers have faced in recruiting participants for COVID-19 vaccine trials.
3: Drug companies and researchers in the U.S. are racing to get a coronavirus vaccine out as fast as possible. And that effort hinges on researchers finding tens of thousands of people to join vaccine trials. And it really matters who they recruit because many researchers want vaccine trials to reflect who's getting sick. In the case of coronavirus, it's Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous communities who've been disproportionately affected. But those same communities of color may also be the least interested in participating in trials. Dr. Branch, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Angela Branch is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Rochester Medical Center. She also helps run a partnership with the National Institutes of Health.
4: We are part of a network that's an NIH network called the Vaccine Treatment and Evaluation Unit. And so we were all in a room in January at one of our first meetings for the year. And Tony Fauci comes into the room and he's like, have you heard about this coronavirus coming out of China? And, you know, everybody chuckled a little bit. I mean, of course, we had. We've been reading the news and trying to see if there's any data. But this was January 20th. And so he said, you know, get ready, this is coming and you guys are going to sort of be part of the backbone of the efforts that turned out to be true. And so we've sort of been at the table since conception, helping to design the trials and move things forward. What did you think or feel when Anthony Fauci came to that January 20th meeting? You know, (laughs) he wasn't a household name. (laughs) before COVID-19. Like we all knew him. He was
3: like an infectious disease hero. So,
4: I mean, he's always been our infectious disease hero, but he wasn't necessarily a celebrity at the time. So this was just kind of our leader coming in and telling us what our first priorities were going to be for the year. And he had more information than we did about the scope of the pandemic potential of the virus at the time. You know, we just had our first case in on U.S. soil that same day So we didn't actually know what this was going to mean for our country or for the world at the point. But, you know, when the leader of your field comes in and tells you this is what's happening, you realize that you just have to pivot and get on board. And this is what we trained for. And let's go. Fast
3: forward eight months and several vaccine candidates have reached phase three trials, likely the last stage before FDA approval. Phase three is when researchers find out whether the vaccine is effective. And these studies require tens of thousands of participants. Angela is recruiting some of those participants now to test a Pfizer vaccine and next week an AstraZeneca vaccine. There's a lot of pressure to work quickly. How challenging is that right now?
4: It's not hard to recruit people to large studies, at least not here in Rochester where we have just this long-standing history of doing this kind of work. I mean, polio vaccines, you know, we worked on those. You know, we worked on meningitis vaccines, pneumonia vaccines. So there's just this understanding in Rochester that people want to be part of that sort of thing. Where we have problems is not having a population that's 95 to 99 percent white and people who live in the suburbs.
3: White people who live in the suburbs. That's some of Rochester's population, but not all. About 17% of Rochester area residents are Black. And Angela says when it comes to phase three trials, it's critical to think of diversity.
4: I think it should always be a goal that when you're doing studies like these, that the group you're trying to prevent disease in is represented in the trial that you're conducting. You know, there's not a lot of biological reason why we would think a vaccine won't work the same way in white people as it will in black and brown people. But you want to have confidence in that. And the only way to have confidence in that is to make sure that you have tested the vaccine in a diverse group of people, especially when you're talking about something like COVID, where you know that minorities are being disproportionately affected by this in terms of the rates of infection and also the rates of deaths. And the other thing is we're trying to create a vaccine that people will take. And once we have this vaccine, even if we are able to show that it works, if people don't trust it, if people won't take it, then, you know, we've lost that battle. And so one of the ways to build trust is to be able to demonstrate to people you know look we tested this vaccine and people that look like you and so we know it's safe and so you can feel confident that it won't make you sick and that it in fact will keep you safe
3: so you're specifically trying to reach out and recruit black people in rochester to participate
4: in the trial what has your experience been like it was an interesting <laughs> it's been interesting um so I'm a black woman and, you know, I have a very large black family and I'm a physician and my brother's a physician and my sister-in-law's a physician. So in our family, there's a lot of respect for medicine and for health care. And so if I call up 100 members of my family and tell them, go get this vaccine, you know, they're going to go get it. If they're sick, they call me and, you know, I tell them what I think. And also, I work in research and I work in healthcare. So I think I'm very insulated in the sense that I haven't fully appreciated some of the historical distrust that black and brown communities have for research and even for healthcare in general. But Angela started seeing that distrust firsthand back
3: in April when she offered one of her patients what was then a new treatment for COVID remdesivir.
4: I went into this man's room and he was a black man and he was in his 40s and he had diabetes. And I could tell he was going to get really sick. Like he hadn't gotten really sick yet, but I could tell that that was coming. And I start telling him about remdesivir and about the study. And, I, you know, it's one black person talking to another. So he stops and he's like, hold it right there. What are the stats? And so I start telling him what we found and why we think that it works and so forth. And he's like, I don't want to know anymore the patient refused the treatment. You know, the next day he got really sick and I was so taken aback by that because a couple of weeks earlier, my uncle had actually died from COVID. It was like so mind blowing to me that I'm talking to somebody, I'm telling him, I have treatment for you that's gonna help you recover and you're the highest risk person for COVID and you have young kids at home and you're the sole caregiver. And you're going to tell me no? (laughs) I just, I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe it. That was my first realization that people just don't trust medicine. And minorities communities just don't trust medicine. They're just not confident that we have their best interests at heart. And it doesn't matter who the messenger is, that distrust is going to be there.
3: So the conversation you had with this man who refused treatment, how did that change your approach and inform how you recruit for your trials
4: well i think it really kind of took me out of the bubble and helped me to have a frame of reference for understanding what a heavy lift it was going to be to go out there and convince people to participate in a vaccine study where they're not necessarily going to derive any benefit and they're not even sick and so People are always more weary of vaccine studies than if you were to go to them while they're sick in the hospital and say, I have something that might help you. And so it just made me realize that this is going to be a crazy heavy lift.
3: Angela's experience treating a black man who was in the hospital for COVID who didn't want to be treated with an experimental drug made her reflect on the reasons behind that reaction.
4: I think there's a lot of historical mistrust. Every Black family in America has heard of the Tuskegee experiments, and those stories get passed down from generation to the generation as a cautionary tale. The Tuskegee study began back in the 1930s and involved
3: a group of Black men infected with syphilis. Doctors denied the men medical treatment
4: to study the long-term effects of the disease. And some of those long-term effects are very severe. You can develop dementia, All sorts of neurological problems. You can lose your vision. It can affect all of your organs. So, people were allowed to die and to get severely debilitated so that the people conducting the studies could understand what the long term effects of syphilis were. And at the time, there was treatment that was available. And so, I think there's this sense that I'm not going to be a guinea pig. And you're specifically targeting me because our community has been guinea pigs in the past and it's had really horrible outcomes. With COVID specifically, I've heard people say, well, you know, we felt that maybe there was bias in our access to testing for COVID-19 and that minority communities weren't having ready access to testing. And so, you know, there's that sort of thing. And I think access to healthcare in general is not just in the United States. And I think that certainly contributes to to distrust of medical research as well. So to counter that distrust, Angela and her team
3: met with a group of around 15 to 20 people. Some were leaders of the Black community in Rochester. She asked the group what her team could do to address the concerns of potential Black
4: participants in the trial. And that was a very challenging conversation because they were just brutally honest. So some of the things that came up were they needed to see more investigators of color. They made it that really clear that if you're going to come into our communities and talk to us about research or about treatment, about anything, you need to have more people on your team that look and sound like us.
3: And did being a black doctor change the
4: dynamic in that conversation with the community members? Well, you know, I was there and then I had another colleague who was white and they were definitely harder on her than they were on me. I mean, they're hard on me too, but at the end of the conversation, they said, well, you're the one who should be talking to us about this, which, you know, I can't be the only person talking about this. I'm not even the most senior member on the team, so (laughs) how that's actually going to work, I don't know. But we heard the message. It's better if the people who are talking to them are like them because they're more likely to trust that source.
3: After that first focus group, Angela and her team expanded their outreach. They teamed up with community groups in Rochester's Black neighborhoods, put ads on radio stations, and they plan to meet with Black fraternities and sororities in the area. And so what is your pitch to Black community members about why they should be in the trial?
4: I think that... We're not going to motivate people with the financial compensation. It's not that much. And it's specifically not that much because we don't want it to be coercive. And so I think there always has to be this altruistic motivation that you want to contribute to science, that you want to contribute to helping your community, that you want to contribute to helping your family, and that you understand that somebody has to be first. Otherwise, other black and brown people will die, as they are from COVID at alarming rates. And so we're trying to make it to help people understand that, you know, we're not doing this because we have research goals. We're doing this because we want to make sure your community is safe and protected. And so, you know, you have an opportunity to contribute to that.
0: Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
1: Next, we hear from a small business owner how difficult and challenging it has been to test employees for COVID-19.
3: Supergirl is a plant-based soup company in Washington, DC. Sarah Poland started it with her mom in 2008. But this year, Sarah has a lot more on her mind than gazpacho and bisque. As of February 28th, we knew what
5: our customers wanted. We knew our plans. March 15th, we knew nothing.
3: Small businesses like Sarah's have had to make hard choices over the past few months about how to keep business open and employees safe during a
5: pandemic. And as a business owner without any data, you are flying in the dark. I cannot tell you how many nights were spent in the fetal position gnawing my teeth because if I don't do this right, someone's going to die. And that's not something that I'm mentally prepared for. So Sarah
3: has turned to one concrete thing she can do, test her employees for COVID-19. But testing the staff each week has been challenging and expensive. At the beginning of this year, Supergirl had two stores in Washington, D.C., and more than 40 employees. National chains like Whole Foods and Costco sold its soups. And Sarah says 2020 was shaping up to be a big growth year. But in March... She had to permanently close one location and lay off some staff. She's been using her second store for curbside pickup and delivery.
5: That location has stayed really busy, even after D.C. issued a shutdown. Our phone, to be honest, was ringing off the hook because people are like, I can't leave my house. I need you to keep doing what you're doing. Our website was like on fire. We have not come up for air. We have not taken a day off. We are just trying to figure this out by the
3: minute. The big thing she's trying to figure out is how to keep making thousands of gallons of soup each week while keeping her employees from contracting the virus.
5: I have to say, like, when you have to factor into your decision-making, are you going to, to be blunt, like, kill someone if you make the wrong decision? That level of stress is indescribable. It is indescribable. And it doesn't make sleep come
3: easy. So Sarah's been learning everything she can about COVID every way she can. She hired a researcher to help her understand the best practices for her business. And she also reached out to an expert to ask for guidance. And what did
5: he tell you? First, he said this is going to last 24 months, in which case I actually yelled at him. And then he asked if my team was in hazmat suits. And I said, I don't think that's going to work. And then I asked him if I was going to be able to hug my mother and he did not recommend it. And that's, that's when I I realized that I needed to have a plan. A comprehensive plan. I realized, yeah, we need the gloves. We need to stagger our shifts to help with some sort of social distancing. We need to pull people off of public transportation. I first spent a ton of money getting KN95 masks, face shields. I bought thermometers for my team. We've installed fans to keep the air moving. We gave bonuses in the beginning to just convince people to stop working for anybody else so we could limit their exposure. And they
3: made those changes during a sweltering DC summer.
5: The masks are really hard. When we first started wearing the N95 masks and the face shields, one person passed out, and another person, to be honest, vomited. Oh my God. They are really, really uncomfortable.
3: But PPE isn't necessarily enough to keep a business from becoming a COVID hotspot. The CDC has said that testing workers, quote, may be useful to help reduce transmission. And many companies are making testing a condition of coming back to work, including Supergirl. Can you talk about that moment when you realized testing was the key piece in reopening?
5: Yeah, so without testing, we're in the dark. And this was spreading like wildfire within food industry workers. I needed data, especially when we were learning how many asymptomatic people were out there spreading this. And I also realized I can't ask people to go somewhere during the day and leave and get testing. How do I pay them? How do I get them there? I need Someone to come to us, and I need to know.
3: Sarah hired a doctor to come to her locations once a week and test everyone. Most employees were on board, though one person quit over privacy concerns. Now, the team has the testing routine down.
5: Every Thursday, the doctor comes, and he swabs all of us. It's actually kind of funny watching. The first time we did it, a few people chose the nose, and that is very unpleasant. And then, So most people get swabbed in the mouth and then, like, gag. It's uh, it's really not very pleasant, but it only takes three seconds. And we've now got it down to a science. Everybody waits outside. One by one, everybody goes in, gets swabbed, and then he or the nurse takes the specimens back to the office and sends them over to Quest Diagnostics. And then we wait.
3: But Sarah soon found out that she had to wait and wait and wait.
5: One gentleman on July 7th, called us he said i'm fine but someone in my family is sick and we didn't get those test results back until july 22nd
3: what all that waiting does to a business that's after the break By June, Sarah was testing between 25 and 30 employees a week for COVID. In the first month, results came back quickly, and no one
5: tested positive. But then
3: it started taking longer.
5: So in the beginning, we were waiting two, three days. It was great. And then they started taking five days. And by mid-July, we were waiting almost three weeks.
3: This slowdown came at a bad time for her. Sarah tested her team on July 7th. And later that same day, one of her employees called to
5: say a family member was sick. He was totally asymptomatic. And we said, you know, thank you for telling us. You got to stay home um, until we get the test results back. Thank goodness we tested. So we're going to know and we can take immediate action. And we didn't get those test results back until July 22nd. And in between, that gentleman got so sick, he ended up in the hospital. Oh,
3: my So that batch, the very batch when you have a positive employee is the one that you had to wait two weeks for.
5: And I don't think my staff believed that really results could possibly take that long. And they got scared and they thought I was withholding information because I didn't want to tell them. And it went from, you know, really feeling like we had a bond and like we were in this together to um, mistrust and questioning and, and fear, just abject fear. Did you tell employees to take extra precautions? I couldn't ask them to do any more than I already was. You know, I reminded them they had their thermometers at home. They all had extra mass. They knew. They know what's going on in their
3: community. After more testing, two other people in the kitchen tested positive. Neither had symptoms, and Sarah sent them home. So all told, three employees got the virus. Sarah thinks the testing helped stop the illness from
5: spreading more than it did. The doctor said I was like a case study in epidemiology because we had stopped an outbreak. And had we not implemented the procedures we had put in, we would have had a devastating outbreak. But because we used those KN95 masks and those face shields and because my team was so committed, no one else tested positive, And thank God the gentleman who went to the hospital is now back. He has tested negative. He survived. It was really, really dicey for a few days. And now we're kind of back. Sarah is trying to keep her
3: team's trust and prevent an outbreak, all while footing a huge bill. She hasn't run the numbers yet, but she estimates she spent more than $10,000 on PPE. And each week, she's also shelling out money for testing. She pays that doctor between 650 and $800 each time he comes to test employees. And that doesn't include the cost of the tests themselves. The
5: tests are supposed to be paid for by either the government or the insurance companies under the CARES Act. However, it's really ambiguous if asymptomatic people are covered. And there is a chance that I am going to be hit with a bill that will be devastating because each test costs $100, and I'm testing between 25 and 30 people a week So if you do the math, if insurance doesn't cover this, if the government doesn't step in, it's not going to be pretty.
3: Would you have to make a choice between staying open or stopping testing?
5: God, I hope not. I don't think I'm prepared to make that choice. I don't feel comfortable operating without testing. I cannot do that to my team. I can't say to my team, sorry, in the name of profitability, I'm stopping this. I can't do that.
0: Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
1: And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time.
0: This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.